This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson, San Jose, California. Right Ho Jeeves by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter 22. I don't know why it is, but there's something about the rural districts after dark that always has a rummy effect on me. In London I can stay out till all hours and come home with the milk without a tremor. But put me in the garden of a country house after the strength of the company has gone to roost and the place is shut up, and a sort of goose-fleshy feeling steals over me. The night wind stirs the treetops, twigs crack, bushes rustle, and before I know where I am, the morale has gone futt and I'm expecting the family ghost to come sneaking up behind me, making groaning noises. Dash it unpleasant, the whole thing, and if you think it improves matters to know that you are shortly about to ring the loudest fire-bell in England and start an all-hands-to-the-pumps panic in that quiet, darkened house, you err. I knew all about the Brinkley Court fire-bell. The dickens of a row it makes. Uncle Tom, in addition to not liking burglars, is a bloke who has always objected to the idea of being cooked in his sleep, so when he bought the place he saw to it that the fire-bell should be something that might give you heart failure, but which you couldn't possibly mistake for the drowsy chirping of a sparrow in the ivy. When I was a kid and spent my holidays at Brinkley, we used to have fire-drills after closing time, and many is the night I've had it jerk me out of the dreamless like the last trump. I confess that the recollection of what this bell could do when it buckled down to it gave me pause as I stood that night at 12.30 p.m., prompt beside the outhouse where it was located. The sight of the rope against the whitewashed wall and the thought of some bloodsome uproar which was about to smash the piece of the night into hash served to deepen that rummy feeling to which I had alluded. Moreover, now that I had had time to meditate upon it, I was more than ever defeatist about this scheme of Jeeves's. Jeeves seemed to take it for granted that Gussie and Tuppy, faced with a hideous fate, would have no thought beyond saving the Bassett and Angela. I could not bring myself to share his sunny confidence. I mean to say, I know how moments when they're faced with a hideous fate affect chaps. I remember Freddy Widgeon, one of the most chivalrous birds in the drones, telling me how there was an alarm of fire once at a seaside hotel where he was staying, and so far from rushing about saving women, he was down the escape within ten seconds of the kickoff, his mind concerned with but one thing, viz. the personal well-being of F. Widgeon. As far as any idea of doing the delicately nurtured a bit of good went, he tells me, he was prepared to stand underneath and catch them in the blankets, but no more. Why, then, should this not be so with Augustus Finknottle and Hildebrand Glossop? Such were my thoughts as I stood toying with the rope, and I believe I should have turned the whole thing up had it not been that at this juncture there floated into my mind a picture of the Bassett hearing that bell for the first time. Coming as a wholly new experience, it would probably startle her into a decline. And so agreeable was this reflection that I waited no longer, but seized the rope braced the feet, and snapped to it. Well, as I say, I hadn't been expecting that bell to hush things up to any great extent. Nor did it. 
The last time I heard it, I had been in my room on the other side of the house, and even so it had hoiked me out of bed as if something had exploded under me. Standing close to it like this, I got the full force and meaning of the thing, and I've never heard anything like it in my puff. I rather enjoy a bit of noise as a general rule. I remember Cat's Meat Potter Purbright bringing a police rattle into the drones one night and loosing it off behind my chair, and I just lay back and closed my eyes with a pleasant smile, like someone in a box at the opera. And the same applies to the time when my Aunt Agatha's son, young Thomas, put a match to the parcel of Guy Fawkes Day fireworks to see what would happen. But the Brinkley Court fire bell was too much for me. I gave about half a dozen tugs, and then, feeling that enough was enough, sauntered round to the front lawn to ascertain what solid results had been achieved. Brinkley Court had given of its best. A glance told me that we were playing to capacity. The eye, roving to and fro, noted here Uncle Tom in a purple dressing gown, there Aunt Dahlia in the old blue and yellow. It also fell upon Anatole, Tuppy, Gussie, Angela, the Bassett, and Jeeves, in the order named. There they all were, present and correct. But, and this is what caused me immediate concern, I could detect no sign whatever that there had been any rescue work going on. What I had been hoping, of course, was to see Tuppy bending solicitously over Angela in one corner, while Gussie fanned the Bassett with a towel in the other. Instead of which, the Bassett was one of the group which included Aunt Dahlia and Uncle Tom, and seemed to be busy trying to make Anatole see the bright side, while Angela and Gussie were, respectively, leaning against the sundial with a peeved look and sitting on the grass rubbing a barked shin. Tuppy was walking up and down the path, all by himself. A disturbing picture, you will admit. It was a rather imperious gesture that I summoned Jeeves to my side. "'Well, Jeeves?' "'Sir?' I eyed him sternly. "'Sir, forsooth!' "'It's no good saying, Sir, Jeeves. Look round you. See for yourself. Your scheme has proved a bust.' "'Certainly it would appear that matters have not arranged themselves quite as we anticipated, sir.' "'We?' "'As I had anticipated, sir. That's more like it.' Didn't I tell you it would be a flop? I remember that you did seem dubious, sir. Dubious is no word for it, Jeeves. I hadn't a scrap of faith in the idea from the start. When you first mooted it, I said it was rotten, and I was right. I'm not blaming you, Jeeves. It's not your fault that you have sprained your brain. But after this—forgive me if I hurt your feelings, Jeeves— I shall know better than to allow you to handle any but the simplest and most elementary problems. It is best to be candid about this, don't you think? Kindest to be frank and straightforward. Certainly, sir. I mean, the surgeon's knife, what? Precisely, sir. I consider, if you will pardon me for interrupting you, sir, I fancy Mrs. Travers is endeavoring to attract your attention. And at this moment, a ringing, Hoy! which could have proceeded only from the relative in question, assured me that his view was correct. "'Just step this way a moment, Attila, if you don't mind,' boomed that well-known, and under certain conditions well-loved, voice, and I moved over. 
I was not feeling unmixedly at my ease. For the first time it was beginning to steal upon me that I had not prepared a really good story in support of my questionable behavior in ringing the fire-bells at such an hour, and I have known Aunt Dahlia to express herself with a hearty freedom upon far smaller provocation. She exhibited, however, no signs of violence. More a sort of frozen calm, if you know what I mean. You could see that she was a woman who had suffered. "'Well, Bertie dear,' she said, "'here we all are.' "'Quite,' I replied guardedly. "'Nobody missing, is there?' "'I don't think so.' "'Splendid. So much healthier for us out here in the open like this than frousting in bed.' I had just dropped off when you did your bell-ringing act. For it was you, my dear sweet child, who rang the bell, was not? I did ring the bell, yes. Any particular reason, or just a whim? I thought there was a fire. What gave you that impression, dear? I thought I saw flames. Where, darling? Tell Aunt Dahlia. In one of the windows. I see. So we have all been dragged out of bed and scared rigid because you have been seeing things. Here Uncle Tom made a noise like a cork coming out of a bottle, and Anatole, whose mustache had hit a new low, said something about some apes, and if I am not mistaken, a ragomier, whatever that is. I admit I was mistaken. I am sorry. Don't apologize, Ducky. Can't you see how pleased we all are? What are you doing out here, anyway? Just taking a stroll. I see, and you are proposing to continue your stroll. No, I think I'll go in now. That's fine, because I was thinking of going in, too, and I don't believe I could sleep knowing you're out here giving a rein to that powerful imagination of yours. The next thing that would happen would be that you would think you saw a pink elephant sitting on the drawing-room window sill and start throwing bricks at it. Well, come on, Tom. The entertainment seems to be over. But wait. The Newt King wishes a word with us. Yes, Mr. Finknoddle? Gussie, as he joined our little group, seemed upset about something. I say... Say on, Augustus. I say, what are we going to do? Speaking for myself, I intend to return to bed. But the door is shut. What door? The front door. Somebody must have shut it. Then I shall open it. But it won't open. Then I shall try another door. But all the other doors are shut. What? Who shut them? I don't know. I advanced a theory. The wind? Aunt Dahlia's eyes met mine. Don't try me too high, she begged. Not now, precious. And indeed, even as I spoke, it did strike me that the night was pretty still. Uncle Tom said we must get in through a window. Aunt Dahlia sighed a bit. How? Could Lloyd George do it? Could Winston do it? Could Baldwin do it? No, not since you had those bars of yours put on. Well, well, well. God bless my soul. Ring the bell, then. The fire bell? The door bell. To what end, Thomas? There's nobody in the house. The servants are all at Kingham. But confound it all, we can't stop out here all night. Can't we? You just watch us. 
There is nothing, literally nothing, which a country house party can't do with Attila here operating on the premises. Seppings presumably took the back door key with him. We must just amuse ourselves till he comes back. Tuppy made a suggestion. Why not take one of the cars out and drive down to Kingham and get the key from Seppings? It went well. No question about that. For the first time, a smile lit up on Dahlia's drawn face. Uncle Tom grunted approvingly. Anatole said something in Provençal that sounded complimentary, and I thought I detected even on Angela's map a slight softening. "'A very excellent idea,' said Aunt Dahlia. "'One of the best. Nip round to the garage at once.' After Tuppy had gone, some extremely flattering things were said about his intelligence and resource, and there was a disposition to draw rather invidious comparisons between him and Bertram. Painful for me, of course, but the ordeal didn't last long, for it couldn't have been more than five minutes before he was with us again. Tuppy seemed perturbed. I say, it's all off. Why? The garage is locked. Unlock it. I haven't the key. Shout, then, and wake Waterbury. Who's Waterbury? The chauffeur, ass. He sleeps over the garage. But he's gone to the dance at Kingham. It was the final wallop. Until this moment, Aunt Dahlia had been able to preserve her frozen calm. The dam now burst. The years rolled away from her, and she was once more the Dahlia Wooster of the old Yoiks and Tantivy days, the emotional, free-speaking girl who had so often risen in her stirrups to yell derogatory personalities at people who were heading hounds. "'Curse all dancing chauffeurs! What on earth does a chauffeur want to dance for?' I mistrusted that man from the start. Something told me he was a dancer. Well, this finishes it. We're out here till breakfast time. If those blasted servants come back before eight o'clock, I shall be vastly surprised. You won't get Seppings away from a dance till you throw him out. I know him. The jazz will go to his head, and he'll start clapping and demanding encores till his hands blister. Damn all dancing butlers! What is Brinkley Court? A respectable English country house or a crimson dancing school? One might as well be living in the middle of the Russian ballet. Well, all right. If we must stay out here, we must. We shall all be frozen stiff, except— Here she directed at me not one of her friendliest glances. Except dear old Attila, who is, I observe, well and warmly clad. We will resign ourselves to the prospect of freezing to death like the babes in the wood, merely expressing a dying wish that our old pal Attila will see that we are covered with leaves. No doubt he will also toll that fire-bell of his as a mark of respect. And what might you want, my good man? She broke off and stood glaring at Jeeves. During the latter portion of her address, he had been standing by in a respectful manner, endeavoring to catch the speaker's eye. If I might make a suggestion, madam. I am not saying that in the course of our long association I have always found myself able to view Jeeves with approval— there are aspects of his character which have frequently caused coldnesses to arise between us. He is one of those fellows who, if you give him a thingummy, take a what do you call it. His work is often raw, and he has been known to allude to me as mentally negligible. More than once, as I have shown, it has been my painful task to squelch in him a tendency to get uppish and treat the young master as a serf or peon. These are grave defects." But one thing I have never failed to hand the man, he is magnetic. 
there is about him something that seems to soothe and hypnotize. To the best of my knowledge, he has never encountered a charging rhinoceros, but should this contingency occur, I have no doubt that the animal, meeting his eye, would check itself in mid-stride, roll over, and lie purring with its legs in the air. At any rate, he calmed down on Dahlia, the nearest thing to a charging rhinoceros in under five seconds. He just stood there looking respectful, and though I didn't time the thing, not having a stopwatch on me, I should say it wasn't more than three seconds and a quarter before her whole manner underwent an astounding change for the better. She melted before one's eyes. "'Jeeves, you haven't got an idea?' "'Yes, madam. That great brain of yours has really clicked as ever in the hour of need?' "'Yes, madam.' "'Jeeves,' said Aunt Dahlia, in a shaking voice, "'I am sorry I spoke so abruptly. I was not myself. I might have known that you would not come simply trying to make conversation. Tell us this idea of yours, Jeeves. Join our little group of thinkers and let us hear what you have to say. Make yourself at home, Jeeves, and give us the good word. Can you really get us out of this mess?' "'Yes, madam, if one of the gentlemen would be willing to ride a bicycle.' "'A bicycle?' "'There is a bicycle in the gardener's shed in the kitchen garden, madam. Possibly one of the gentlemen might feel disposed to ride over to Kingham Manor and procure the back-door key from Mr. Seppings.' "'Splendid, Jeeves.' "'Thank you, madam.' "'Wonderful.' "'Thank you, madam.' "'Attila,' said Aunt Dahlia, turning and speaking in a quiet, authoritative manner. "'I had been expecting it. From the very moment those ill-judged words had passed the fellow's lips, I had had a presentiment that a determined effort would be made to elect me as the goat, and I braced myself to resist and obstruct. And, as I was about to do so, while I was in the very act of summoning up all my eloquence to protest that I didn't know how to ride a bike and couldn't possibly learn in the brief time at my disposal, I'm dashed if the man didn't go and nip me in the bud. Yes, madam, Mr. Wooster would perform the task admirably. He is an expert cyclist. He has often boasted to me of his triumphs on the wheel. I hadn't. I hadn't done anything of the sort. It's simply monstrous how one's words get twisted. All I had ever done was to mention to him, casually, just as an interesting item of information, one day in New York when we were watching the six-day bicycle race, that at the age of fourteen, while spending my holidays with a vicar of sorts who had been told off to teach me Latin, I had won the choir boy's handicap at the local school treat. A different thing from boasting of one's triumphs on the wheel— I mean, he was a man of the world and must have known that the form of school treats is never of the hottest. And, if I'm not mistaken, I had specifically told him that on the occasion referred to, I had received half a lap start, and that Willie Punting, the odds-on favorite to whom the race was expected to be a gift, had been forced to retire, owing to having pinched his elder brother's machine without asking the elder brother, and the elder brother coming along just as the pistol went, and giving him one on the side of the head and taking it away from him, thus rendering him a scratched at the post non-starter. Yet, from the way he talked, you would have thought I was one of those chaps in sweaters with medals all over them, whose photographs bob up from time to time in the illustrated press on the occasion of their having ridden from Hyde Park Corner to Glasgow in three seconds under the hour, or whatever it is.
and as if this were not bad enough, Tuppy had to shove his oar in. That's right, said Tuppy. Bertie has always been a great cyclist. I remember at Oxford he used to take all his clothes off on bumper supper nights and ride around the quad singing comic songs. Jolly fast he used to go, too. Then he can go jolly fast now, said Aunt Dahlia with animation. He can't go too fast for me. He may also sing comic songs if he likes, and if you wish to take your clothes off, Bertie, my lamb, by all means do so. But whether clothed or in the nude, whether singing comic songs or not singing comic songs, get a move on. I found speech. But I haven't ridden for years. Then it's high time you began again. I've probably forgotten how to ride. You'll soon get the knack after you've taken a toss or two. Trial and error, the only way. But it's miles to Kingham. So the sooner you're off, the better. But... Bertie, dear. But, dash it, Bertie, darling. Yes, but, dash it, Bertie, my sweet. And so it was arranged. Presently I was moving somberly off through the darkness, Jeeves at my side, Aunt Dahlia calling after me something about trying to imagine myself the man who had brought the good news from Ghent to X. The first I had heard of the chap. So, Jeeves, I said as we reached the shed, and my voice was cold and bitter, this is what your great scheme has accomplished. Tuppy, Angela, Gussie, and the Bassett, not on speaking terms, and Self faced with an eight-mile ride. Nine, I believe, sir. A nine-mile ride, and another nine-mile ride back. I am sorry, sir. No good being sorry now. Where is this foul bone-shaker? I will bring it out, sir. He did so. I eyed it sourly. Where's the lamp? I fear there is no lamp, sir. No lamp? No, sir. But I may come a fearful stinker without a lamp. Suppose I barge into something. I broke off and eyed him frigidly. You smile, Jeeves. The thought amuses you? I beg your pardon, sir. I was thinking of a tale my Uncle Cyril used to tell me as a child. An absurd little story, sir, though I confess that I have always found it droll. According to my Uncle Cyril, two men named Nichols and Jackson set out to ride to Brighton on a tandem bicycle, and were so unfortunate as to come into collision with a brewer's van. And when the rescue party arrived on the scene of the accident, it was discovered that they had hurled together with such force that it was impossible to sort them out at all adequately. The keenest eye could not discern which portion of the fragments was Nichols and which was Jackson. So they collected as much as they could and called it Nixon. I remember laughing very much at that story when I was a child, sir. I had to pause a moment to master my feelings. You did, eh? Yes, sir. You thought it funny? Yes, sir. And your Uncle Cyril thought it funny. Yes, sir. Golly, what a family. Next time you meet your Uncle Cyril, Jeeves, you can tell him from me that his sense of humor is morbid and unpleasant. He is dead, sir. Thank heaven for that. Well, give me the blasted machine. Very good, sir. Are the tires inflated? Yes, sir. 
the nuts firm, the brakes in order, the sprockets running true with the differential gear? Yes, sir. Right-o, Jeeves. In Tuppy's statement that when at the University of Oxford I had been known to ride a bicycle in the nude about the quadrangle of our mutual college, there had been, I cannot deny, a certain amount of substance. Correct, however, though his facts were, so far as they went he had not told all. What he had omitted to mention was that I had invariably been well-oiled at the time, and when in that condition a chap is capable of feats at which in cooler moments his reason would rebel. Stimulated by the juice, I believe, men have even been known to ride alligators. As I started now to pedal out into the great world, I was icily sober, and the old skill, in consequence, had deserted me entirely. I found myself wobbling badly, and all the stories I had ever heard of nasty bicycle accidents came back to me with a rush, headed by Jeeves's Uncle Cyril's cheery little anecdote about Nichols and Jackson. Pounding wearily through the darkness, I found myself at a loss to fathom the mentality of men like Jeeves's Uncle Cyril. What on earth he could see funny in a disaster which had apparently involved the complete extinction of a human creature, or at any rate of half a human creature and half another human creature, was more than I could understand. To me the thing was one of the most poignant tragedies that had ever been brought to my attention, and I have no doubt that I should have continued to brood over it for quite a time, had my thoughts not been diverted by the sudden necessity of zigzagging sharply in order to avoid a pig in the fairway. For a moment it looked like being real Nichols and Jackson stuff, but fortunately a quick zig on my part, coinciding with an adroit zag on the part of the pig, enabled me to win through, and I continued my ride safe, but with a heart fluttering like a captive bird. The effect of this narrow squeak upon me was to shake the nerve to the utmost. The fact that pigs are abroad in the night seemed to bring home to me the perilous nature of my enterprise. It set me thinking of all the other things that could happen to a man out and about on a velocipede without a lamp after lighting up time. In particular, I recalled the statement of a pal of mine that in certain sections of the rural districts goats were accustomed to stray across the road to the extent of their chains, thereby forming about as sound a booby-trap as one could well wish. He mentioned, I remember, the case of a friend of his whose machine got entangled with a goat chained and who was dragged seven miles, like skioring in Switzerland, so that he was never the same man again. And there was one chap who ran into an elephant, left over from a traveling circus. Indeed, taking it for all in all, it seemed to me that with the possible exception of being bitten by sharks, there was virtually no front-page disaster that could not happen to a fellow, once he had allowed his dear ones to override his better judgment and shove him out into the great unknown on a push-bike, and I am not ashamed to confess that, taking it by and large, the amount of quailing I did from this point on was pretty considerable. However, in respect to goats and elephants, I must say things panned out unexpectedly well. Oddly enough, I encountered neither. But when you have said that, you have said everything for in every other way the conditions could scarcely have been fouler. Apart from the ceaseless anxiety of having to keep an eye skinned for elephants, I found myself much depressed by barking dogs, 
and once I received an unpleasant shock when, alighting to consult a signpost, I saw sitting on top of it an owl that looked exactly like my Aunt Agatha. So agitated, indeed, had my frame of mind become by this time, that I thought at first it was Aunt Agatha, and only when reason and reflection told me how alien to her habits it would be to climb signposts and sit on them could I pull myself together and overcome the weakness. In short, what with all this mental disturbance added to the more purely physical anguish in the billowy portions of the calves and ankles, the Bertram Wooster who eventually toppled off at the door of Kingham Manor was a very different Bertram from the gay and insouciant Boulevardier of Bond Street and Piccadilly. Even to one unaware of the inside facts, it would have been evident that Kingham Manor was throwing its weight about a bit tonight. Lights shone in the windows, music was in the air, and as I drew nearer my ear detected the sibilant shuffling of the feet of butlers, footmen, chauffeurs, parlor-maids, housemaids, tweenies, and, I have no doubt, cooks, who were busily treading the measure. I suppose you couldn't sum it up much better than by saying that there was a sound of revelry by night. The orgy was taking place in one of the ground-floor rooms which had French windows opening onto the drive, and it was to these French windows that I now made my way. An orchestra was playing something with a good deal of zip to it, and under happier conditions, I dare say, my feet would have started twitching in time to the melody. But I had sterner work before me than to stand hoofing it by myself on gravel drives. I wanted that back-door key, and I wanted it instanter. Scanning the throng within, I found it difficult for a while to spot Seppings. Presently, however, he hove in view, doing fearful lissom things in mid-floor. I high-seppingsed a couple of times, but his mind was too much on his job to be diverted, and it was only when the swirl of the dance had brought him within prodding distance of my forefinger that a quick one to the lower ribs enabled me to claim his attention. The unexpected buffet caused him to trip over his partner's feet, and it was with marked austerity that he turned. As he recognized Bertram, however, coldness melted to be replaced by astonishment. Mr. Wooster. I was in no mood for bandying words. Less of the Mr. Wooster and more back-door keys, I said curtly. Give me the key of the back-door, Seppings. He did not seem to grasp the gist. The key of the back-door, sir? Precisely, the Brinkley Court back-door key. But it is at the court, sir. I clicked the tongue, annoyed. Don't be frivolous, my dear old butler, I said. I haven't ridden nine miles on a push-bike to listen to you trying to be funny. You've got it in your trousers' pocket. No, sir. I left it with Mr. Jeeves. You did... What? Yes, sir. Before I came away. Mr. Jeeves said that he wished to walk in the garden before retiring for the night. He was going to place the key on the kitchen window-sill. I stared at the man dumbly. His eye was clear, his hand was steady. He had none of the appearance of a butler who has had a couple. "'You mean that all this while the key has been in Jeeves's possession?' "'Yes, sir.' I could speak no more. Emotion had overmastered my voice. I was at a loss and not abreast. But of one thing it seemed to me there could be no doubt. For some reason— not to be fathomed now, but most certainly to be gone well into, 
as soon as I had pushed this infernal sewing machine of mine over those nine miles of lonely country road and got within striking distance of him, Jeeves had been doing the dirty. Knowing that at any given moment he could have solved the whole situation, he had kept Aunt Dahlia and others roosting out in the front lawn on Desha B, and worst yet, had stood calmly by and watched his young employer set out on a wholly unnecessary eighteen-mile bicycle ride. I could scarcely believe such a thing of him. Of his Uncle Cyril, yes. With that distorted sense of humor of his, Uncle Cyril might quite conceivably have been capable of such conduct. But that it should be Jeeves. I leaped into the saddle, and, stifling the cry of agony which rose to the lips as the bruised person touched the hard leather, set out on the homeward journey. End of chapter 22